Please listen carefully. Hello and welcome to episode 78 of the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. This podcast is all about developing your voice as a journalist and developing the skills to harness that voice. Now, the person you're about to meet is the definition of how to develop your voice, and we're going to get to her in a second, but first, a few requests. Please, subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher is the best podcast app I know. It keeps a playlist of your favorite shows and automatically updates with new episodes so you don't have to download them. Just download the Stitcher app and subscribe to the Telling the Story podcast. Second, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. If you like what you're hearing and want others to hear it too, a kind rating on iTunes is the best way to boost us in the rankings and search, so I kindly encourage that. Finally, you can buy my book, The Solo Video Journalist, wherever fine books are sold. It is a how-to guide for the most in-demand job in local TV news, those who shoot and edit their own stories. It's getting picked up by college classes. It's being read around the world. Again, that's The Solo Video Journalist on sale now. And speaking of that book, big announcement coming at you right now. The Solo Video Journalist sold so well that I was asked to write a second edition of the book updated for all the changes that have hit our industry in the past few years, and now that book is here. The Solo Video Journalist second edition is officially out. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy your books, and one of the biggest changes was an expanded chapter on digital, the latest tips and techniques, the time management tricks to not feel overwhelmed, and the guidance on how to build your digital brand into a force that extends far beyond your on-air footprint. For that chapter, I interviewed two standout solo video journalists, including the person you're about to meet. In just seven years in the business, she's worked in major markets, interviewed countless big names, turned out digital exclusives, and documentaries. She's moved from the standard broadcast journalism path into a freelance career that this year alone has meant gigs with WXIA-TV in Atlanta, her own startup culture content spot, The Appeal Unfiltered, and the legendary Vibe magazine. Naima Abdullahi, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've been a fan of this podcast, so to finally be a guest is such a big honor. And yeah, this is dope. I'm so glad I'm here. (laughs) Well, you know, it's always a pleasure to have someone on who I've actually known for a good amount of time. And Naima, I've known you since your first days at our station in Atlanta. And I'm excited for this podcast because knowing you as I do and and as the host, I know I can pretty much just kind of kick my feet up on this one and let you tell your story because no one does it better. And that's why I wanted to bring you on. Before we get into digital and and how you use digital and and the ways in which you, you work it to develop your brand and your identity, give people the short version of how you got into this field because I'm always inspired when I hear your story and I think others will be too. For me, I wanted to become a journalist because I started to see how beautiful and powerful the art of storytelling is and how valuable representation is for underserved communities, for minorities, which I call majorities. Um, So, you know, oftentimes the stories of our diverse communities are not always told in an authentic manner, in a, in a manner that really reflects on their potential, their, you know, their prosperity, their possibilities. And for me, coming from that kind of background, I always saw the absence of what was needed. And when I became a journalist, I really took the vow and I took the commitment to make sure that 
diversity and representation would always be my foundation and my backbone. Um, and, you know, I stayed very committed to that vision to the point where, you know, a lot of people would ask me, are you pigeonholing yourself? You only want to cover culture. You only want to cover about African-Americans, about, you know, specific diverse communities. I'm like, well, everybody else can cover hurricanes and house fires. I think I'm good on this one. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've stayed committed to it. And, you know, it, it's finally paying off, but it's definitely a commitment. When you commit to a niche lane, you got to stay in it. You got to continue having that vision because eventually it's going to pay off. And I feel like, you know, in our conversations and knowing what I know about just like, you know, how you grew up, where you went to high school and, and the things that you were interested in. I think a lot of people have interests and passions outside of journalism and they kind of suppress those when they get into the field. And you've really gone the other direction. You've taken the things that you loved as a kid and in school and really embraced them and turned them into what's now your career. Is that is that fair to say? That's completely fair to say. We moved to the United States in 1996 from uh, East Africa. I was born in Mukadishu. We had to leave, you know, we pronounce it as Mukdishu, but, you know, that's an accent, right? Um, but I was born in uh, Mukadishu, and then we kind of left and went to Kenya right after the Civil War. And then from Kenya, we came to the United States. Um, and Atlanta really adopted us and accepted us as one of their own. Um, so, you know, my immersion into the culture came through um, Atlanta's Black history, Atlanta as the Black Mecca, and hip-hop music, and outcasts, all of that, right? Um, so for me, my introduction to American history, Black history, uh, U.S. history, um, and my journey of becoming a citizen, all those things became to inter became um, got into an intersection, a beautiful intersection. And for me, that's part of my identity. You know, that's how I was introduced to American history and Black history, and you know, a, a history that I've inherited as my own. It's part of my identity. But at the intersection of between, at the intersection of being between two different worlds, the world you came from where you were on survival mode, your mother did everything she could to help you live the American dream. And then in a world where you're thriving in your own identity, you have to embrace all aspects of who you are. You can't just tone it down because you made it. Um, so for me, you know, being back home in Atlanta, a city that raised me and covering journalism, I was like, you know what? I'm not toning nothing down. Uh, there's, there's no code switching. There's nothing. Like, I'm going to be me 100%. This city will love me the same way this city has always loved me. And I felt like Atlanta, being such a diverse city, you know, there was no, it, it wasn't like, you know, a win-lose situation. It was a win-win. Just be you. Um, because this is the greatest city to be yourself if you are a person of a diverse background. And, you know, you started right out, right out of the gate. You were working at a station in Charlotte uh, for your first job, and then you came to Atlanta a few years later. So, you know, you arrived very young into your journalism career, and I would and imagine... just kept higher and higher. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine that, um, you know, you get that kind of opportunity, and, and I'll back it up a little bit to say that, you know, so I grew up in New Jersey, and between my first and second full-time jobs in uh, local news. I worked freelance at a 24-hour cable station, uh, News 12, New Jersey, uh, mm -hmm. back home. So I was living at home and working like two, three days a week and actually doing reports out of my hometown. And it was a weird, it was a surreal moment because, you know, like my parents were able to watch me on television and their friends were able to have the TV on and suddenly, oh, there's, there's, you know, there's my friend's kid. He's on yeah. TV right now. And I do remember at that time, like, even though I was 23, I want to say 23 at the time, 
feeling like, you know, I'm still very young in this thing, but I, I feel like I understand this audience. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. I understand. And I was back in sports in that time and I grew up such mm-hmm. a huge sports fan of mm-hmm. all those teams. So I was like, I know how to cover the Giants and the Jets and I know how to do this. And I feel like someone like you coming to Atlanta, even at the age you did, there's probably that certain instinctive understanding of like, this is not only what the the broader audience wants, but here's this community that hasn't really been covered the way it should be and an audience that doesn't get thought of enough in newsrooms, you, I should go after that. I, I imagine that's in my head how it went down for you when you got here. Absolutely. And what I also realized was, you know, the people who started to recognize me the longer I was at WXIA, I realized the people who were recognizing me were not who we thought our viewers were. Let's just be honest, right? I, oftentimes we're told of a specific viewer, let's call her Sarah, um, between the ages of 35 to 45, living in a nice gated community. We know she makes anywhere from 60 to 80,000. We know her household income. And oftentimes, you know, news stations, not specifically speaking about one, but uh, news stations tend to have this generic model of who the viewer is, right? Um, and for me, I knew that it wasn't about the typical Sarah. Um, it was about, you know, it was about Teresa. It was about Muhammad. It was about, you know, Miguel. It was about, because the people who recognized me were people from diverse backgrounds. So, you know, even though we're oftentimes told, okay, here's what our typical viewer looks like. I was like, nah, what I'm seeing out in the streets look completely different. Um, and you know, the love I was getting from, you know, um, African-American communities, immigrant communities where I was getting emails from people who were like, wow, we've never seen an Arabic name on TV before. Like, that's a big deal, right? Um, So when I started to see that who I am was tapping into a specific group of people who, you know, oftentimes don't have representation, I was like, nah, like, that's my pot of gold. I'm gonna go after that because they oftentimes don't have stories that reflect their identity, their background, and their perspectives. And yeah, just kind of went all in on that. Um, And it really paid off in Atlanta because, um, the content really speaks to the community in a way that we oftentimes don't see, but it's making impact. And I think in journalism, what we realize is, you know, impact drives income. If you chase income, you're going to chase your way out of this industry. But if you chase impact, eventually the love that you have for storytelling and journalism will eventually pay off if you stay committed to it. So I'm so in love with the impact part that I was like, you know, eventually this is going to be you know financially rewarding but i'm committed to the culture um and it's it's a marathon you know dropping gems early on naima i love it <laughs> um let me uh let me back it up just a little bit because you met, you talked about getting this feedback and you talked about you know hearing from people who you know the the typical uh you know tv news manager might not think of as being in their audience or in their you know their target i assume this feedback was coming online? I would say yes. Um, and hold on one second, because I'm changing location so that it's a little bit quieter. But I know you can edit it down a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. This is the real stuff right here. Hey, this is... let's, let's do it. Let's do it. You know, I had to take <laughs> tape to another studio. Um, <laughs> so I, the feedback, you know, oftentimes come from our own notion of who we think the content is supposed to reflect. Um, and who it's supposed to represent. 
let's just be honest, the relationship between African Americans and media has not always been good, which is why we're seeing the kind of reckoning that's happening in our nation right now. Um, there's a lot of study that has been done where, you know, African Americans for a long time felt like news content and news products were not meant for them in terms of stereotypes being perpetuated in terms of what stories are run in, in terms of, um, you know, the intentionality behind the decision-making process. So, you know, for me, there are so many barriers to break because I come from those communities. Um, I'm an immigrant. I am a Muslim. I'm an African woman. And I also identify as a black woman. Um, so when there are so many aspects of me being the other I have to speak for those groups because those stories hit close to home for me. Um, so, you know, it's personal and there's no way you can ever separate yourself from the stories, even though we're told to. There's no way I cannot relate to a story that impacts people who look like me, sound like me, practice my faith. Um, so oftentimes, you know, in American society, we live in isolated groups where there is no intersection between different groups. So one person's perception of who the viewer is might be because of who's in their circle or who they think is watching. So for me, being, you know, able to identify with so many other groups, I can also say, actually, this person's always also watching too. Or, you know, this person also cares about this issue too. Or how can we tailor the product for this kind of person as well? Um, so when I say that, I say, you know, because of my background, I can add more perspective into the different kind of viewers that are in this market. And before we get into the the digital section of this and, you know, and, and how you've built your audience there and, and dominated the way you have, I, I do want to ask one more question about this, because I think it's not just about reaching an audience outside the newsroom, but it's about reaching that audience in the newsroom too. you know, reaching managers and convincing them that stories need to be told. And, and you know, we have, thankfully, a, quite a diverse mm -hmm. newsroom in many ways uh, at WXIA. But I, I do remember when you arrived I, I believe you were the only Muslim voice in our newsroom at that time. Maybe still are. I'm, I, I hesitate to say that, but I, I believe at the time you arrived, you were. And I remember there being morning meetings, which, you know, where I heard things that that were offensive to me. And I'm not Muslim, but that were offensive to me about that as part of the conversation. And I always wondered, like, you know, what it must have been like for you especially, again, at your age in a newsroom of award winners and, and, you know, people who've been doing this for decades, at what point do you make your voice heard in that context? And I know that's something where, you know, certainly now, I you know, you are the shining example of someone who, like I said, you don't tone it down, you don't code switch, you do your thing. I'm wondering how long did that take to build up for you? And was that something that was, was there from the start? Or, you know, did you have to feel your way and pick your battles and, and, you know, and, and make certain choices? I think, you know, it's, it's a realization that when you come from any specific group of people who are considered a minority, there's a certain level of responsibility that comes with that. Um, and, you know, with that kind of specific example, I could also relate it to, you know, how Hispanic journalists feel when they're covering immigration stories, stories about DACA, and they may hear something about an immigration joke and how they may take it. Um, you know, so because there are so many different marginalized groups in society, I just so happen to identify with a lot of them. 
um, immigration stories hit home for me, you know, um, and I don't tolerate any level of uh, discrimination, any level of, you know, jokes that aren't really funny um, or jokes that may dehumanize certain groups of people. I have not heard that in an 11 Alive newsroom, something that was intentionally said to me to make me feel less than but overall you know speaking in terms of the whole industry that reckoning i spoke of right it comes with a certain level of responsibility to know that when you put on your crown that crown was purchased for you by many people who made sacrifices for you to even put it on your head um, so for me, when I wear my crown as an African queen, a Muslim journalist, a this, that, that, I know the level of responsibility that comes with it and the battle that I am fighting and what my good trouble is, if we really look at it in terms of good trouble, is educating, building communities and really building an understanding between different worlds. Now, there is no way to educate ignorance if ignorance wants to stay ignorant, um, but that should never really stop you from having that conversation. There's always room for conversation and there's always an opportunity to walk away with a mutual level of respect. And when I look at it from that perspective, I don't shy away from confrontation. I don't shy away from misunderstanding because I really want to get to the root of what the issue is, because that's what so many communities are facing right now. And, and I hear you on that. And again, like I said, I, I when I see you today, I see that person. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, and we have so many oh, young journalists who listen to this. Yeah, yeah. I've always like, been this way. I've always been this way. Um, and, you know, I never had a moment in my career where I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't. Like, I I'll always, always. Um, it was literally like month one into my first job. And I was pulling someone into the hallway and be like, look, I ain't like when you said what you said, what you said, but we going to talk about this. <laughs> um, so I've always been that way where it's like, you know, by the end of the day, we can have a tough dialogue and a tough conversation. Um, but by the end of the day, we're going to walk away respecting each other. Um, so, yeah, it's I use the opportunity of having conversations because I know I represent so many different things that I may be the first time this person ever met someone like me. And I've had that situation, you know, working in the Atlanta DMA, 52 counties, right? If you get out of seven of those counties, it don't look like me. <laughs> so for me to be like, you know, a general assignment reporter in, in a state like Georgia, um, I've had a lot of conversations with our viewers who I was the first Muslim they've ever talked to. I was the first immigrant they've ever met. And we just, after I would interview them, we would just sit and talk. And I would be late sometimes and almost miss deadline, but I was so fascinated by certain communities I went in our market that it was worth having those conversations because if I'm the first of my kind that you're meeting, I'm going to make sure you see the best version of me. Even if you may walk away still not liking me as a Muslim, you're going to know Naima Abdullahi and who she is. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. She is Naima Abdullahi. And Naima, I want to dive into digital now. First of all, mm -hmm. thank you for, for all that background. And again, I think uh, such an example for so many out there. And beyond that, though, you're also an example of, of you know someone who not only knows her identity, but knows how to translate that into an audience online that is really strong. You've got tens of thousands of followers on Instagram, which seems to be really where you've really focused on building that brand, but also uh, very dominant on Facebook and Twitter as well. At what point in your career did you realize the power of that? And did you start to think, you know, it's not just about what I'm doing on TV, but I got to work to build my audience. 
and I got to work to build up the numbers online and that fan base. For me specifically, it really came down to one thing. I realized my friends and my age group did not watch news the way I thought they watched news. And if I wanted them to turn the TV on, I had to get their attention on social media. And when I started posting little teases and little things and little tweets here and there, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to turn on my TV. I was like, is that what it took to turn on your TV? It was to see a little something, something first. (laughs) And then I was like, "Okay, how can I turn this little something, something into like a little something bigger? Right. Um, So then I started making digital only content and then digital exclusives. And then when there was like a big thing I was doing for TV, I would just tease the heck out of it like three days in advance to break the Instagram algorithm. Because once you break that algorithm, you really see an increase in uh, engagement and views. But that's when I started to realize it was like, you know, my friends only turn the TV on when they saw something first on social media. (laughs) And I feel like, especially, and we're about 10 years apart in age, I feel like whereas most of my friends came up on Facebook, and a lot of my journalist friends are on Twitter, but most of my friend friends are mostly on Facebook, I feel like in your age group, it's Instagram first, and then maybe Facebook, you know, maybe people have a Facebook account, but they don't check it so much, and Instagram's really the priority. I know it is for you in terms of your digital post, but I would imagine just what you were seeing with your friends, that had to be the case, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, Twitter was a thing. And then when Instagram popped up um, and then Instagram took over some of Snapchat's ideas, it took me away from Snapchat because if the reason why I was on Snapchat was stories and now Instagram has stories, why am I on, why am I on Snapchat? <laughs> uh, so I really started to see so much energy and all the influencers and everyone gravitate towards Instagram. Um, So I really put a lot of my attention into it. But now I'm like trying to plan ahead. Like I need to learn how to TikTok or I need to learn how to do this because now Gen Z is 10 steps ahead of us. Same way you feel like you had to catch up to like, you know, my age group. Now I'm trying to catch up to (laughs) (laughs) what Gen Z is doing and how they use TikTok to inform and to educate and to, you know, do like, you know, instructional videos and things like that. So there's always going to be something new. It's just a matter of how much time are you willing to invest to kind of uh, learn the art of it. And that's the thing, too. You know, my my philosophy on digital has always been almost like, you know, a very conservative uh, investor in the stock market where like you look at the stocks that you know are going to be around in 10, 20 years and that's what you invest your time into. And the ones that pop up, uh, you know, and might seem like the hot new thing, you don't necessarily jump to that right away. You, you wait it out a little bit and see if it's here to stay. And the example I always use is like Vine. Like there was a good year where every station wanted everybody to be using Vine at all times. Mm -hmm. And very quickly they realized, A, that didn't work. And then within a few years, Vine was folded in and basically, you know, is not relevant at all anymore in the digital conversation. But the things like Facebook and Twitter and now Instagram too, I feel like have shown that staying power. So like, you know, you're talking about getting into TikTok. I think I downloaded TikTok just so when stories happen and I can tap into that audience, I know what it is and I know how to use it. But I don't plan on getting a TikTok account anytime soon just because I don't want to spread myself too thin. I'd rather build the loyal audiences on the, you know, on the bigger, more established names that I know are going to be there 10 years from now. But then I look at someone like you who dove all into Instagram and realized that that's what your generation was using, was going to be using. 
and turn it into really, you know, something big. And I, I think there's points to be made in both directions there. But I, I, I really value that approach that you took of finding like, you know what, for the things I'm interested in and for what I want to do, this is really going to be a lane that I can pursue. And, and it's made a big difference. Absolutely. And it doesn't matter how, what's amazing about Instagram and social media is it doesn't matter how many followers you have, or if you have a blue check mark or not, you can still grab the attention of hundreds of thousands of people with really tapping into what's the conversation now? What's the trending topic now? And how can you mold a conversation from something people already care about and are talking about and is already on their radar? Um, so it's like, you know, once I kind of figured out, okay, I have this amount of followers, but I can still grab 100 to 200K um, of, you know, eyeballs and interactions, then you really learn the art of really crafting a niche content for a niche audience. Um, and, you know, when everything was happening within the last two months of officer involved shootings and protests and things like that, I was posting uh, seven to 10 times a day. Um, and really started to build, you know, a strong following just from that alone. You know, since January to now, I've gained like four to four to five thousand followers. Um, and it just really comes from engaging the audience and creating a plan. You have to have a social media plan. If your plan is once a week, be great at once a week. If your plan is three times a day, be great and be consistent. But you have to have consistency because, um, because people are going to expect content from you if you promise them uh, three, t three times a day or, you know, once a week or things like that. So I'm really disciplined in what time I post, when I post, what kind of content I post, how much personality content to drop, how many news content to drop, how many hip hop content to drop. So, um, you know, my brand really represents three different things. If you come to my page, you're going to get information about, you know, black history um, black excellence. You're also going to get a little bit about, you know, um, the diaspora in Africa, and then you're also going to get hip hop. Um, I don't ever post outside of those three things. Those are what my followers know. Those are what my followers expect. And I stick to that because it works for me, but people who post, you know, spontaneously and never have like a plan, they're just posting to post all the time. It's hard to build a community around that. So I always tell people, make sure you know what you want your brand to represent so that you can build a community and a conversation around it. There's uh, and there's so many great nuggets from you in the book. Uh, again, the solo video journalist, second edition on sale now. Naima is heavily in the digital chapter along with Tiffany Liu uh, down at WFA in Dallas. There's one story I'd love for you to give away now, which is the story of the outcast mural and how you kind of found your way to a really big audience on a story that everybody in Atlanta was covering. Right. So I pitched that story. Um, I started to see a lot of social media attention to this mural. I saw CNN was covering it, Rolling Stone, everybody. I mean, it's outcasts, right? Who wouldn't want to cover it? They're the greatest group ever. Um, and, I was like, <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. This is cute. Like, you know, the artwork is getting attention. And then I was like, all right, let me watch week two, what kind of coverage happens. And wait, back, back it up real quick. What tell, Describe what the mural was exactly. It was a black and white painting, huge wall. Like it's it's behind a building um, in Little Five Points, which is uh, artsy part of um, Atlanta. And it's a huge mural of outcasts. 
um, Andre, larger than life mural of Andre and Big Boy. And, you know, it's it really started to attract thousands of people per week. And this is pre-pandemic, of course. But, you know, thousands of pe people were traveling from like, you know, 50 miles away, 100 miles away. Everybody wanted to take a picture of Outcast because even in a city like Atlanta, they don't, there's no Outcast Museum. There's no, you know, hip hop museum. There's as, as a hip hop capital city, there's still not a designated landmark that really honors, you know, Atlanta as a hip hop hub. And that's why so many people started to gravitate towards it. So, you know, me growing up on Outcast and being a huge Outcast fan and Organized Noise and Goody Mob and all those guys, um, I was like, I wonder if they really know Outcast or if some of them are just clout chasing or just want a cute Instagram selfie. Um, and I pitched to my EP on the morning show. I was like, I want to go pull up on these people pulling up. Like, I just want to go see <laughs> if you, they really bout it, bout it, or if it's just a cute picture. <laughs> um, she was like, all right, go for it. Let me see what it looks before I turn it down. I was like, all right, cool. So I just started quizzing people who were showing up and then created a story out of it. And next thing you know, um, once I posted it on social media, everybody started sharing it. And I didn't expect it. You know, big boys shared it. Um, so many hip hop icons in Atlanta shared it and showed it love and killer Mike. And, you know, that's what building a community around content is really about because it really, really fosters a sense of, you know, taking the conversation to a level it hasn't been able to reach yet. And that's what journalism is. How can you take the conversation to a whole nother level? Um, so yeah, that was that was a pretty cool idea. I didn't know it was gonna look as cool as it did, but <laughs> the people we interviewed made that piece successful. And I was just glad to find some real diehard outcast fans out there. <laughs> glad that but that at least some people knew the lyrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some. <laughs> that it was a complete embarrassment for everybody showing up to that mural. Um, yeah, one lady was like, uh, can I phone a friend? I was like, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, th there's one thing that you do on Instagram, which I'd love for you to talk about this, because this to me seems very, I see a lot of hip hop uh, musicians and influencers on Instagram doing this, but I don't see very many journalists. If I can't really think of any off the top of my head who do this other than you. But when you post videos they're always letterboxed and there's a top bar and a bottom bar that essentially brands your name on each clip. And every time you post a video, it at Nemer Dreamer is somewhere very visible. And it's something that, like I said, I don't see a lot of journalists doing that, but I would imagine that particularly on Instagram where, you know, videos are reshared and you never quite know who posted it the first time, that kind of branding is really, really important to developing that following. I absolutely agree. And the reason why I started doing that was, you know, when you have a niche um, audience of what you really try to appeal to on social media, whether it's, you know, makeup artists do it, um, you know, health and fitness, whatever it may be, mine is, you know, culture and music. What you see is like that community really does a great job of resharing, resharing, resharing. The thing is, people may not always know where it came from. So in the art of resharing, sometimes the source of where it came from can get lost in the process. And when I started to see my content on blogs and websites and get, you know, um, some of my interviews would end up on, you know, national radio shows because they didn't have access to that artist when this big news story happened. I was like, OK, 
this is a lesson to brand my content. Um, so that's when I started, you know, adding the at sign. And what I realized was the amount of followers I had crazy. It started to go up. Engagement went up. My mentions went up. So really, you know, if you take a little small step in, you know, protecting your content and your brand and what you do, you'll see the engagement go up. And the reason why I started to add text is that was part of an experimentation. I would post one video a week without text and saw the engagement was down. And then I started to add text like, you know, um, uh, searchable search engine words, you know, keywords, things like that. And I saw like, wow, that same video a week later is doing 10 times better than without text. So the more, you know, you innovate, 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 eventually you go and crack the code. Um, and that's really what I try to do is just continue experimenting until I figure out what that soft spot is that really works for my audience. One last thing on your strategy for digital, and then then I want to move into more broader uh, topics and advice topics for younger journalists as, as we wrap up. But I, one thing that I, I've always really admired about the way that you approach digital is that it's not, you're never stuck in concrete. You never get set in your ways. And you're constantly evaluating algorithms and what posts work and what don't. And again, I think it's it's a real change of pace for a lot of people who, you know, you learn how to tell a broadcast news story and you can live off that model for 30 years, but you can't really do that online. And, you know, you can make the argument that you can't really do that as much in broadcast anymore anyway. But when it comes to online especially, I mean, you really have to be on top of how to get your material in front of others. And, and I'm curious, how often are you looking into strategies? How often are you checking on algorithms? And how do you go about doing that? Because, you know, there is no shortage of advice on the internet about how to succeed on the internet at grabbing eyeballs. I always think about it. Um, you know, right now, um, I just dropped an interview for Vibe magazine with Bubba Wallace. And, you know, for someone like that, who is demanded every single day to be on ESPN, Good Morning America, you name it, he's everywhere, right? Um, and he's picking up endorsements left or right. He has commercials, he has this, that. He's everywhere at the same time. So it's like, you have to make sure that, you know, when you want your brand to align with someone else to get their attention to be on your brand and for you to interview them, um, you know, where is that alignment? Can you be seen as the export, expert of that specific thing you know, and my thing when I reached out to him and his team was, we're going to talk about culture. I don't know. I may not be the greatest to know about NASCAR, <laughs> but I know what it's like being black in America. And we're going to have a really great conversation about that. Um, and, you know, the more I talked to his team, the more they said, all right, cool. Like, you know, if you want that to be the focus of the conversation, go for it. He's all about it. That's one topic that he really wants to go into because he realizes that he's helping to facilitate conversations that are changing the sport and changing his fan base as well in a way that it mirrors who he is as a person. So I feel really strongly about brand alignment. If someone else can relate to your brand in a way that it represents what their brand represents, that brand alignment can create the kind of synergy where you don't have to pitch yourself. They can go on your social media and see that you're really putting in the work, you know? Um, and I, that's what I look at my Instagram feed. I scroll through it and I'm like, is this the feed 
that best represents me so that if I'm reaching for an interview of Burna Boy or Idris Elba or this person or that person, um, they can, you know, go to my at sign and see that I'm really putting in the work. It's not just someone who wants to clout chase or ask them the gotcha questions or this or that. Your credibility can come from your social media. And that's really what I always think about. How can my credibility come from my feed? And I think that's a really good point too, which is to know what you want to get out of your digital presence. If you're just posting mm-hmm. because you have a metric to hit or you know, you're posting because you want you feel like you need to be on this platform, then you're probably not getting the most out of it. But if you know exactly what you're looking for, whether it's brand alignment, whether it's representing the as you said earlier, the the three focus points that you try to show people about yourself. If you go in with that mindset, you're much more likely to have success at reaching the people who you're trying to reach. Absolutely. 100%. And to be honest, like your energy can be detected from your social media. Um, You know, sometimes we got Twitter fingers and we tweet and tweet and then, you know, we, we say this and that was funny or whatever, but you really have to think, you know, Are my tweeting habits and my posting habits reflective of the brand that I want to build? And how much personality can I show? How much authenticity am I willing to show where it's still professional? You still going to get Naima, um, but it's still going to be the professional Naima, whether it's me rapping along to, you know, a, a Tupac song or whether it's me interviewing someone about, you know, Dr. King, like it's still me. And that's a question you have to ask yourself. What's the synergy between everything I love where it still comes off as me? and the best version of me. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. She is Naima Abdullahi of of many places, WXIA-TV, The Appeal Unfiltered, uh, Vibe Magazine, and uh, many other spots as you've developed this freelance career for yourself. And and that's actually what I wanted to talk a little bit about before I let you go. Um, I always like to use this final section of the podcast as an advice section for young journalists specifically and for people breaking into the industry wondering, how their careers might unfold. And I mentioned this off the top, but for a while you were doing kind of the standard broadcast thing. You know, you moved, you started in a really solid market, but then you, you know, moved up market size. You were doing general assignment work while kind of figuring out your lane. And then at the end of last year, you left XIA and decided to go freelance and take this different track and explore something that a lot of people, a lot of journalists of any age, let alone yours, would be cautious or or too cautious to do. So I want you to talk a little bit about that, um, you know, just about that approach and why you felt confident in taking that leap uh, at this stage of your career. For me personally, you know, everyone always says the phrase, bet on yourself. It's never really betting if you know that regardless of what you do, you're gonna win and you're gonna thrive. That's called believing in yourself. For me, I wanted to make sure that considering journalism is a marathon, right? Um, it's a lifelong commitment that we all make. Sometimes it's okay to hit the pause button. And sometimes it's okay not to know exactly what the next step is. And sometimes it's okay to know that the job title you want does not exist yet. And it's okay to go create it. And that's what I did. I took a break and I said, look, I love culture. I just want to make sure I kind of take two steps back to make sure that I'm not heading in a direction that may, you know, uh, slow down my real big dream inside my head that I don't see yet in the industry. And it's okay that I didn't see it. 
Um, but I wanted to really go take the time to hit the pause button, reflect, assess, um, and really make sure that when I came back into the game after, you know, taking a little bit of a break that I was in the right energy, the right mindset, and I've really prioritized what I want out of this industry. We never slow down to ask ourselves that question. We just keep accepting job offer to job offer to job offer to job offer, thinking this is what we're supposed to do. And I wanted to be in control of the trajectory of my career. And that's why I went to go create a YouTube channel. Like, you know what? It's okay. I don't know what the next big thing is. I'm, I'm, I'm going to work with the dope team and create a YouTube channel just for hip hop music. And it really became something where next thing you know, Vibe Magazine is calling. And the next thing you know, you know, Fox Soul wants me on a panel. And then another nationally syndicated culture show. And it's still going. You know, there's a lot of conversations I'm having with other brands to collaborate with them. But I wasn't afraid to step out of my comfort zone to chase something that I didn't see existing yet. And it's kind of interesting within the last few months, I'm starting to see that synergy I've always wanted to see in the industry um, of culture and news and, you know, the whole rundown. It's about, you know, it's about diverse communities. And that's the area that I'm really passionate about. So the synergy we're seeing right now is something I've always wanted to see, which is representation. Um, You know, so when, you know, 11 Alive called with the opportunity of like, hey, could you see yourself coming back to freelance? I was like, oh, absolutely. Like this freelance energy is so cool. Um, And 11 Alive was super supportive of me taking my own time to really take that break I needed because I was also feeling a little burned out. Um, So yeah, no, breaks are healthy. They're necessary. People won't tell you to take one. If you can afford it, take it. (laughs) Mental health is so key. You have to really make sure that your mental health and your well-being and you're rested and you're not burned out because it's a lifelong commitment, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, I had the pleasure of watching you speak at the NPPA uh, virtual video storytelling workshop uh, that I put on a few weeks back and and you were part of the digital panel on that one. And it was such a powerful presentation because I, I really do think it's it's just, you know, it is rare that you see someone who really has this full understanding of what she wants to do and how she fits into that. And like you said, like realizing that maybe the position didn't quite exist as you wanted it, but knowing how you could get closer to it and in some ways create it for yourself is a really, really powerful thing. Um, What are the messages? Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, and I just want to say, you know, 11 Alive was super supportive of that. Um, You know, from the news director, Jennifer Rigby, to John Duchesne, who knew I was really passionate about culture and really wanted to go explore it on my own and really, you know, build that brand and invest in that brand. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible when you can just say, you know, I'm not at a point in my life where I want to sign a contract, um, but I just, I just want to go take the time to really build a brand from scratch. And they both supported it. Um, And, you know, like relationships are so important where, you know, now I can come back on a freelance level and, you know, that mutual love and respect and admiration goes both ways. You know, it it just feels like a family. I think good management will always be the key to people's success. And I really feel like XIA has that. I completely agree with you on that. And I think what's really cool and, and, you know, again, because I know you and because I've worked with you for a while, I feel like I can say this with some certainty, but I want you to tell me if I'm right. I feel like mm-hmm. when you were when you were at 
Eleven Alive as a full-time employee and doing general assignment work, obviously people knew of your interests and you were doing great work on the culture front, but it was much more sporadic, whereas now when you've come back, you're very much an authority on that subject. And you can come back as someone who, you know, is not, you, you can almost re, uh, recreate your identity or reinvent yourself to some degree. And when you come back having done interviews with Vibe Magazine where you're interviewing U.S. senators and now obviously Bubba Wallace, you know, you can come back and you're operating from a position of strength, if that makes sense, where like, you know, I'm coming back, but here is who I am and here is what I do. And this is what you're signing up for in a way that maybe you don't have as much clout to do that as a general assignment reporter. Am I am I fair in saying that? I want I, I kind of absolutely. Yeah. It's you know if you really look at it, it's brand investment. Um, if you really invest in your brand and the vision that you have, and you're willing to, um, it's called high risk endurance. I've read so many books of, you know, entrepreneur, media entrepreneurs and executives and this and that. And everybody always talks about high risk endurance. It's uh, I've never being, heard this phrase before. This is interesting. So what is high risk yeah. endurance? High risk endurance. You know, Tyler Perry speaks of it. Steve Harvey. Um, it's this it's TD Jakes. Everybody talks about high risk endurance. And what it really is, is making sure that you build the right momentum in the right direction and you go all in that even if it doesn't work the first time that second version is going to fine tune it and then that third version and that fourth version and if you're willing to really put one full year into what you want out of what you want to do and you put all your eggs in that basket and you really build that brand for one solid year undistracted really focused on it um you'll be really surprised at how much good can come out of that. Whether it's discipline, discipline is huge. Um, having the discipline to consistently show up for yourself is something a lot of people are not willing to do. In our society, we're taught to show up for others, but to show up for our own selves is something that a lot of people don't know how to do. Um, so, you know, high-risk endurance really teaches you about discipline, accountability, showing up for you, um, and really building the right endurance um, that when you take a risk, it's always going to be good because you learn something out of it. Well, Naima, this has been a wonderful conversation. I always like to end with that famous reporter's question. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? Man. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, you know, be you, love you, do what you do. Um, just be 100% about it. There you go. Naima Abdullahi, thank you so much for joining me on the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you for having me. And don't forget, you can hear from Naima and many other tremendous solo video journalists in my new book, The Solo Video Journalist, second edition. We've got 16 different interviews with MMJs around the country, as well as a foreword and interview with the legendary Boyd Hooper. So check that out now. That's The Solo Video Journalist, second edition, on sale now. The Telling the Story blog updates every Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. And check out my book, The Solo Video Journalist, Second Edition. Thank you to Jazar for the theme music. Thanks so much to Naima Abdullahi for joining me as my guest. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs>